Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Help. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 232 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses. Serious mental illnesses are associated with what are called high-risk behaviours. And high-risk behaviours include violence, substance abuse, unprotected sex. The serious mental illnesses associated with various of the high-risk behaviours include Alzheimer's disease, bipolar disorder, clinical depression and schizophrenia. And there are are as many as 11 mental illnesses associated with high-risk behaviours. Now, some high-risk behaviours create emergencies requiring immediate responses. Examples are when the person has thoughts that are bizarrely violent or homicidal, when the person has thoughts of suicide, or when the person attempts suicide. Some immediate responses result in actions that increase the risk in the situation, such as shooting of guns, shooting of guns at mentally ill persons. High-risk behaviours too often take the person, the person's family, and the person's family caregiver into the criminal justice system, which is why our topic today bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Catherine Curry and Joanne Kaposi. Um, what, what I would like to do, just by way of introduction, is to s- summarize for, for you uh, their bios. Um, they have impressive bios, and this is just a summary. Catherine has been practicing criminal law since she was called to the Bar of Ontario in 1992. She holds the LLB and LLM degrees with a specialty in criminal law from Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. Her practice is primarily devoted to criminal defence at the trial level. She regularly appears in all the courts of the Greater Toronto area. She has a particular interest in representing clients with medical issues and has a very high success rate in working with clients to have charges stayed or withdrawn through mental health diversion programs. She sits on the boards of many community agencies. Joanne was called to the bar in 1988 
she joined the downtown Toronto Crown Attorney's Office as an assistant Crown Attorney in 1988. She's been engaged in prosecutorial work for 25 years with extensive trial experience. She's managed, supervised and mentored teams of assistant Crown Attorneys. She's now lead Crown in the Mental Health Court and Drug Treatment Court in Toronto, Ontario. She's lecturer and presenter at educational seminars dedicated to mental health court and drug treatment court practice and law, um, which she gives for various groups. She's a member of the Mental Health Court and Drug Treatment Court committees tasked to review and seek practice improvements. So welcome to the show, Catherine and Joanne. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you. Okay. Now, first question for you, Catherine, please. Please tell us a little bit more about your work as a lawyer as it relates to persons with serious mental illnesses. Yes, Gordon, my criminal defense practice is representing clients in the justice system who've been charged with a criminal offense, and most of my clients have a serious mental illness or some other mental health issue that's caused by, say, a head injury or developmental delay. Now, I would like to say that Many of the high-risk behaviors that you're talking about aren't uh, what I would say as high-risk as what you're characterizing. Uh, You've mentioned guns and so on. Most of my clients aren't involved in behaviors that are as risky um, as as what you've mentioned. Uh, A lot of times the behaviors are are really behaviors that that are out of control, that constitute criminal offenses. but they're caused by uh, someone who has been diagnosed with a mental illness or is about to be diagnosed with a mental illness. And many times uh, I am at the beginning of, of someone who is just beginning to understand that they have a mental illness. At that point in time, I follow them through the bail hearing, the fitness to stand trial issues, the decision whether or not to go to trial, to plead guilty, or to participate in a mental health diversion program. But my major job is to ensure that my clients' rights under the law are protected, whether they're mentally ill or not. They're innocent until proven guilty, and that's my job. Right. Joanne, please tell us more about your work as a lawyer as it relates to persons with serious mental illnesses. Okay, well, um, I, um, as you mentioned, I'm one of the lead uh, Crown attorneys in the uh, mental health court in downtown Toronto at the present time, and this is one of the busiest uh, jurisdictions in the country, and certainly we see a great number of people who are afflicted with serious mental illness who come into conflict uh, with the law. Um, They are charged with a variety of offenses, and as Catherine says, um, they're not necessarily all at the high end. Um, They can also be lower-level offenses. Um, As uh, Crown Attorneys, we are um, charged with the duty um, to protect public safety, so that's one of our concerns as we come into this process, uh, but also to have an understanding of the issues that do affect uh, mentally ill individuals, and so... um, We certainly do have um, training and sensitivity uh, when we work in this uh, particular uh, courtroom in dealing with this particular population. Thank you, 
That's very helpful. Um, Catherine, what are bail hearings that we're talking about? What are they generally? And how does the criminal justice system conduct them? Well, generally, a bail hearing is held to decide whether or not to release a person who's charged with a criminal offense uh, into the community uh, pending their trial or some other resolution. So a bail hearing is really uh, to decide, can this person be safely uh, released into the community? And as such, it really is really, I would think, the most important time in the whole process. It's Many people think that it's more important even than the trial, because trials sometimes take a very long time to schedule. So if someone is released on conditions, it, it could be a very long time before they would have a trial. And statistics have shown, I hate to use that statistics have shown, but, but statistics have shown that if a person is detained at this point, very often they will plead guilty. And so if a person is released, especially a person who has a major mental illness, that's the point they can be connected with services and there are conditions that can be attached and they can go on to maybe uh, be diverted and have a a successful outcome. And so the bail hearing there are, um, it can be done on consent, with the consent of the Crown, or there can be a contested hearing before a justice of the peace or a judge. Right. Joanne, what are bail hearings as these relate to serious mental illnesses, and how the, does the criminal system conduct those types of bail hearings? Okay, um, so... In answer to this question, one thing that I want to raise to begin with is um, the concept of fitness to stand trial. Um, And a lot of uh, family members come into court with a certain expectation. Sometimes as a last resort, they've had a family member charged with a criminal offense um, because they think that this is how their loved one is finally going to get some help um, in by, by gaining admission to a forensic hospital. And um, what I often have to explain is that that is not necessarily the case when someone comes into the criminal justice system and that at the front end of the system, this turns on whether or not uh, someone is what we call fit to stand trial, which is largely an examination into whether the individual has a basic understanding of the court process um, and is able to communicate with counsel, we look to those things to um, to uh, be able to proceed with the criminal charges. So if the person doesn't meet that legal test, um, then sometimes the court will order treatment for them and send them to a forensic hospital for a limited period of time for a maximum of 60 days. And if that were to happen at the beginning of the process, we wouldn't move to bail at that time. However, um, if the individual doesn't meet that legal criteria, then we do consider uh, bail right at the front end of the process. Um, And so there could be a bail hearing, um, and that's if the uh, Crown and Defense don't agree with respect to a bail plan, but the advantage of being in a specialized uh, court and also with uh, many 
well, with all of our offices now being familiar with this area of the law, is that um, we can get together and craft bail plans that will address public safety and allow accused persons with mental illness to be released into the community with uh, support surrounding them so that they can be safe on uh, pretrial release while awaiting the ultimate outcome of their matters. John, I just want to see if I've understood something that you you said, and that is, on the one hand, there is the question of whether the individual um, is actually able to understand what's going on. That's perhaps as oversimplification. Then the second is the question of whether uh, they are allowed to go back into the community and actually then constitute a danger to public safety. Have I understood that correctly? Well, that's an assessment that's made at the time of the bail hearing. So, um, um, so yes, that's when um, the Crown Attorney is going to be concerned about addressing public safety grounds when someone is returned to the community. Right. Okay. Now, we've come to the time when we have to take a short break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Catherine Kerry and Joanne Capozzi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Curry and Joanne Capozzi. 
Our topic is bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses. So now let's talk about the facts and factors, and those are, that's, those are my words, they may not be right, that influence the criminal justice system's decisions about bail. And about let's also talk about what happens to the person when once the decision is made. So starting again with you, Catherine, please, what facts and factors lead to bail being granted? Well, Gordon, there are specific grounds that are laid out in the Criminal Code of Canada that have to be assessed uh, in any decision to grant bail. So there are three factors. Uh, The primary ground, uh, which is whether the person is a flight risk and whether they will attend court. And the secondary ground, whether there's a substantial likelihood to reoffend and whether there's a danger to the public. And the tertiary ground, whether the detention is necessary to maintain public confidence in the administration of justice. Now, the third ground, the tertiary ground, usually is not engaged unless it's a very serious offense. But the first two grounds have to be addressed. And with mental health um, clients, uh, the the first two grounds are grounds that um, are addressed usually through having either a surety, uh, which is a person who can come forward and offer to supervise the person in the community. And here in Canada, we have people who do not have to put up money but agree to sign for a certain amount of money that they will be required to um, give up if they don't supervise the person properly. So, and the issues that are important are residence, Will the person have a place to live? And will they, if, if they have a mental illness, do they have a psychiatrist? Are they taking medication? Um, is it a first offense? Is it not a first offense? Is there violence involved? Uh, are they family victims, non-family victims? Uh, so there are a whole raft of, of issues that are important and that have been shown through case law to be important. And as a defense lawyer, it's my job to address those issues, bring them to the Crown, and discuss with the Crown how those issues are met with either a surety or bail program or a mental health program so that the Crown can be confident that those Uh, issues are being addressed with a very good plan. And that is the most important thing as a defense lawyer, to have a very good plan to address each issue. And in most cases, with a mental health client, if I can convince the Crown to consent to release, I'm in a much better position. Right. Joanne, Same question, but opposite direction. What are the facts and factors that lead to bail being denied? Well, ultimately, uh, whether or not bail is denied is uh, a decision made by the jurist who would hear the bail hearing. Um, So that's either uh, going to be a justice of the peace or a judge. 
um, in the court in which the uh, person is going to appear. Um, the Crown attorney will take a position regarding that, and if the Crown attorney is of the view that um, the bail plan, perhaps it's being proposed by defense counsel, does not satisfactorily address public safety concerns, then we are in a position where we would contest the release of the individual because uh, most likely we are concerned on what's called the secondary ground um, for detention, which does address public safety factors. So our concerns as Crown attorneys uh, are whether the victims of the offense or and potential uh, future victims um, are going to be protected if this individual is released back into the community. So with respect to the facts that influence our decision, um, we would look to whether or not this is a serious offense and a serious offense of violence or threatened violence on the part of that individual. We would also look to whether or not they have any history of violence in the community. Um, and we would consider um, any bail plan that was proffered to us um, and we would look at the um, areas that uh, Catherine has raised um, to see if they could address our concerns about public safety. Does this individual have a residence in the community? And that can even be um, a shelter if the person doesn't have a stable residence. And we have mental health workers who work in the mental health court at Old City Hall, as do uh, courthouses across the province have mental health workers who assist persons um, to find housing in the community if that's an issue for them. Um, another thing that we look to, as Catherine says, is whether they have medical support in the community, um, whether or not they are prepared to take medication if they are psychotic at the time, and this might be uh, the factor that is driving um, the behavior that the Crown Attorney is concerned about in, in the uh, present case. And we look to any other um, supports that they may have in the community that may help them to remain stable um, while they're on bail. If that's not the case, then we would contest the individual's release, and as I say, the ultimate decision would be um, by the justice of the peace or the judge. Right. Now, Catherine, what happens to persons for whom bail is granted? You, you, you spoke about the plan. Please tell us more about the way in which the persons go through the plan and who looks after them while the plan is being implemented. Catherine? That's actually a very good question, Gordon, because if through experience and, and if you look at the history and, and what charges people with mental health issues tend to have, breaches are the most common charges that, that people have. So what that tells you is that, um, you know, the follow-through is one of the most important parts of all this. So the plan, you know, after the bail is granted, everyone is willing to agree to the plan and all these conditions uh, while they're in custody and to, to be free. But then afterwards, and some of the the most uh, incredible difficulties and hurdles happen uh, after the the uh, the 
the, that plan is is agreed to. You know, people are are detained out of the city in in Toronto. They're in in jails that are way out of the city. So once someone is released, they don't have keys to their their apartment. They don't have health cards. They don't have prescriptions, and they've just agreed to take medication. There are all kinds of hurdles. So having support, and if we're talking to family caregivers, uh, that's one thing that families are often shocked when they discover the reality that maybe people don't have coats in the wintertime. They don't have boots. They don't have gloves. And so all these supports after bail is granted are really important. A lot of the courthouses have Salvation Army or other agencies who are there to support people, to give them tokens or bus fares so they can get to the shelter that they've agreed to go to. Sometimes beds are arranged and the beds will only be be available for a couple of hours and the person has to get there and it often takes a couple of hours for the papers to be typed up. So, you know, there are a lot of hurdles and right. families who are, are available to help uh, are invaluable. Right. Joanne, same question, but relating to um, people, persons for whom bail is denied. So what happens to persons for whom bail is denied? Joanne? Okay. The, um, the judge or the justice of the peace would issue a detention order um, if they are not prepared to grant the individual bail. And then that person um, will go to the local detention center um, and remain there, um, usually until their matter is dealt with. And then it will be up to the individual. For example, if they choose to plead guilty, they may come back into court. Um, even the same day that the detention order is made, they could plead guilty to the charge uh, and move on with sentencing. Or they could choose to wait for a trial, in which case their trial would be expedited by virtue of the fact that they're being detained in custody um, to minimize the uh, amount of time that they're in custody prior to trial. Um, sometimes in cases of mentally ill accused, um, the issue of fitness to stand trial comes up again while they're in detention waiting for their trial matter to be heard. And if that's the case, um, then they can be brought into court for that uh, issue to be explored. And if they might be unfit to stand trial and are so found, then they could be sent to a forensic hospital. Um, to await uh, a disposition of the Ontario Review Board or be sent for a treatment order to get uh, treatment for their mental illness, um, um, as I said, for a maximum period of 60 days and hopefully become fit within that uh, window of time and then be returned to court, uh, found fit, and carry on with the case. Joanne, just a follow-up to that. You mentioned detention centre. Yes. Um, is that different from a jail or is no. it a jail uh, in, in fact? It's John? a jail in fact. Yeah. Um, how long would the person likely be in that detention centre? Um, and what would, what would be the kind of care that they would receive in the detention centre? Well, the length of time a person remains in a detention center is going to depend on how they choose to deal with the case afterwards. Um, if they choose to plead guilty, they can do that at any time, and then it would be a matter of sentencing. If it's going to be a matter for trial um, and it's a, a less serious case, they're likely to have a trial date within a matter of a few months. If it's a very serious case, um, then uh, that 
detention prior to trial might be for a much longer period of time. Um, the most serious cases are prosecuted um, by what we call by indictment, and um, they would have a preliminary inquiry usually prior to going on to trial in the superior court in their jurisdiction. So if that's the case, then they could be potentially waiting for a much longer period of time, uh, such as a year or more. I'm still following up on this, Joanne, just to ask you what we sometimes read about and don't understand, but that, first of all, on the one hand, there is medical care for people in jails. Um, That's very well understood. On the other hand, we hear from time to time about violence among, can I call them prisoners, um, who inflict violence on people and sometimes people who are vulnerable because of mental health conditions. Now, I may have have that wrong, but Joanne, just very quickly, what is the situation about care and threat? People uh, who suffer from mental illness uh, in jail certainly um, are in a position um, to receive treatment for their mental illness. There are um, uh, medical doctors and psychiatrists who go into jails to examine people who are being held in jail pending trial. Um, Usually people with mental illness, uh, as far as I understand, um, are kept in um, uh, uh, special quarters in the jail um, for people who have mental health issues. So they're not kept uh, with everyone else, uh, particularly because uh, they have special needs. Um, on the other hand, uh, there have been um, some instances where there have been uh, incidents of, of violence uh, amongst inmates. That is true. Right. Okay. Now, it's time again for us to take the break. We'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Catherine Curry and Joanne Caposi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Curry and Joanne Capozzi. Our topic is bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses. Let's now talk about the implications for family caregivers of the criminal justice system's decisions about bail. Now, this is a tricky question, or tricky set of questions. I recognize this. So, Catherine, what are the implications for family caregivers um, of persons for whom bail is granted? Well, you're right, Gordon. It, It is a tricky question because it depends on what the role is of the family caregiver in the justice system because uh you know if the if the, the 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 person has if the family caregiver has agreed to be the surety then the family caregiver has the obligation then to supervise and that can be a very uh tension filled responsibility for a family caregiver because that quite often the surety has testified in under oath in court and said that they will supervise the person and in fact come in and and report them if they don't take their medication, if they don't go to appointments, if they don't follow up on all the conditions. So it's very difficult for a parent or a brother or somebody like that to to follow through. And it's easy in some ways for somebody who's in custody to promise anything when they're in custody and then when they're out to to maybe not follow through. So it it is very difficult for caregivers um, I would suggest to to follow through when bail is granted. It's a very difficult position, and I think that's been recognized by anyone who's who's looked at the bail system. And uh, the the other uh, position that a family caregiver might be in might be in the position of being a victim or a witness, and that's something I think that Joanne could address. Right, Joanne, um, I'm still asking the question. But reversing it, that is to say, I'm going to ask you what the implications are for family caregivers of persons for whom bail is denied. But I'd also like you to respond to Catherine's point, please. Joanne? Um, well, sometimes the, uh, the uh, family caregiver can be um, the alleged victim of the offense. Um, so um, that potentially puts the family ca- caregiver uh, in, in a difficult position. Um, ordinarily, um, in our effort to protect public safety, um, we do not want um, the accused person 
uh, to have contact with the victim. So if this is one of the caregivers, um, then it would often be the case that the individual would be on bail to have no contact with that family caregiver who is the victim of the alleged offense. Um, and so you can see how that might be difficult um, for the family caregiver. Um, what that person can do is um, to have contact with the Crown Attorney or also um, the Attorney General provides a service called the Victim Witness Assistance Program. And um, this uh, service is excellent um, for uh, victims of crime and they can uh, speak to the representatives and have their views made known. Um, this applies to uh, Prior to proceeding with bail, you know, whether they have uh, a fear of uh, the accused person or not, um, whether they want contact or they don't, and, and um, issues of that nature. Um, and that's always something that can be updated. And so sometimes when bail is granted and there's no contact with a family member, uh, sometimes that can be varied. Um, over time, um, where the Crown Attorney might be satisfied, for example, that the uh, accused person is following the bail plan uh, and, for example, might be taking medication and their psychotic condition is stabilizing so that our concerns with regard to the, the victim's safety are beginning to be addressed. Um, so the conditions of bail might be relaxed to allow contact with the caregiver uh, in certain circumstances, under certain conditions, and ultimately to allow contact um, at, uh, at the um, caregiver's consent, which could be withdrawn by the caregiver if the caregiver were to get concerned again about his or her safety. Now, when bail is denied, um, again, the family member uh, can um, get support uh, through the Victim Witness Assistance Program, and um, these representatives can link them to services uh, to help support them through the process. Um, and uh, deal with their concerns through that process. The one thing is, though, uh, that sometimes a family caregiver might not want to proceed with the criminal charge uh, because uh, their uh, loved one is now uh, in jail awaiting trial, but they don't really have control of the prosecution anymore. That's in the hands of the Crown Attorney. We do, however, consider um, the victim's views of the case in all cases, but then we have to consider um, broader interests, as I say, such as public safety, and that includes the safety of the family caregiver in the instance where they are the alleged victims of the offense. Right. Catherine, when bail is granted, what role, if any, does the criminal justice system ascribe to family caregivers? And Regardless of your answer to that part, what support is available to them? Well, usually the justice system is the last, the place of last resort for uh, for uh, family families, um, and I think Joanne alluded to this earlier. Um, quite often, if someone has a major mental illness, they've Families have turned to maybe the medical system, the social system, and the justice system is the last place that they want to be and that they've turned to. And families have been looking for a long time for help. And when they finally get to the justice system, they it can be very frustrating for them. And so 
at, there, there's quite a lot of tension between the rights of the individual and the desires of families to take care of their loved ones. Uh, so families quite often are there looking for information and trying to help, but then the individual is the one who's charged. And so their lawyer, me, their defense lawyer, has to take instruction from the client. And uh, what for for families, um, it it is often quite difficult. Um, and as a lawyer, uh, I have to take instruction from my client. I can't answer to the family. Uh, but it is very important for families to stick around, to be as helpful as they can. And it's very, very um, difficult to walk that fine line between recognizing that your loved one is charged with a criminal offense and that, that you need to be there to help them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you really don't have a right to have knowledge about their defense. So it, it, is, it is very difficult. If you're not a victim or a witness, um, then, then you don't actually have a right in, in the justice system. Right. And um, that implies that if you don't have a right, you don't have a role either. Is that right, Catherine? You don't. You don't have an official role. No, right. you don't. If you're, if you're, for example, I think what what's very common is, as uh, I think is is quite common knowledge that the schizophrenia strikes, uh, you know, young people in the age group 18 to 25, and quite often we'll have, you know, young people who are, you know, maybe starting school or whatever, and so their parents are there, and, and they want to know what's going on. Well, if, as counsel, if, if their, um, if their son or daughter doesn't want parents to know what's going on, they have the right to, to say, I don't want my parents to know. Right. Now, let's, Joanne, take the situation when bail is denied. What role, if any, does the criminal justice system ascribe to family caregivers, and what support is available to them in those circumstances? Joanne? Um, well, as Catherine said, if the family caregiver is um, the alleged victim of the offense, um, then that will be their role. Um, so they would, uh, they may have to testify in court with regard to uh, what happened, um, and if that's the case, um, they can certainly uh, meet with the uh, crown attorney who's going to be having carriage of the matter. They can have, they can express their views to the crown attorney uh, about the case, um, and they can also be prepared um, by the crown attorney for being a witness in court. Uh, and the crown attorney may explain the process and what they might expect uh, in questioning uh, before the judge that they're going to appear in front of. And they can ask any other questions that they might have about the process. Um, again, they would also have access to um, victim witness assistance program representatives, and they can also spend more time within them uh, about any questions that they have about the process. Um, if they're not victims of the offense, um, then 
uh, as Catherine says, they don't really have uh, a, a specific role at that point, but there are, as I mentioned earlier, uh, supports which may be available to them. Just a comment back to you, Joanne. Those supports, in the particular circumstances you've described them, sound positive and strong in the sense of preparing the family caregiver for what must be pretty well always an ordeal of a kind that nobody's trained for and nobody's prepared for. So this is asking you for opinion, but do you believe then that the supports when they do come into play are fair and reasonable. Is that right? Um, yes, I do believe that. These are my personal beliefs now. But yes, there there is support and information available if the family member reaches out. Um, and, uh, and if they accept uh, the support that may be available to them as well. Um, some support is offered in some cases and family members choose not to avail themselves of it. But if they want to uh, accept uh, various types of support, it is available. Catherine, just very quickly, um, we hear sometimes about house arrest and things of that nature. And what kind of information flows to me suggests that house arrest can be very, very stressful for family caregivers. Um, when bail is granted in such a way that um, family care, you know, the, the individual goes to the care of the family caregiver, so to speak. Is house arrest used in any way or any form? And if so, is it correct to see it as a, a stressful thing for family caregivers? I, I think house arrest is, is terribly stressful. Um, and uh, it's, um, you know, it, it, it really is uh, something that, that uh, you know, shouldn't be used unless um, unless the caregiver really is in a position to implement that. I mean, there are there are um, situations where you know the, the 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 person is you know either debilitated or or is in in such a situation that that. Do need to be monitored at all times, and it is appropriate. I think it is appropriate in some situations um, where where uh, the, the, the person needs to be accompanied and uh, and and needs to be monitored. And I, I think that, that that it is appropriate and uh, in in those situations. But um, but I. I think it's it's pretty well recognized by you know crowns and and the um, justice of the justices of the peace that you know putting somebody inappropriately on house arrest is is just a terrible strain on on a caregiver you know if it if it's somebody who's an active person who can go around and unless it's an extremely serious case and you know there's 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 no other alternative. All right. Now, again, it's time for the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Catherine Curry and Joanne Capozzi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Curry and Joanne Capozzi. Your, our topic is bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses. Um, now, both of you, research seems to confirm the impression that persons with serious mental illnesses are overrepresented in the criminal justice system and jails. So, Catherine, starting with you first, please, what's your response, your personal opinion? Uh, to the point of view that jails are unsuitable places for persons with serious uh, mental illnesses, regardless of the behavior that brought them into the criminal justice system. Catherine, what do you think? I agree. I think that we should not, as a society, be mixing people who intentionally committed a criminal offense with people who behave that way unintentionally. It's one of the tenets of our criminal justice system. It's a major principle of criminal law that in order to be guilty, a person must commit the act or the actus reus and have the mental element to go with it or the mens rea. So, you know, it's to me, it's, uh, you know, Gordon, you're an academic, so I think you can appreciate that as, as someone who, who studied criminal law, it, it really even offends uh, ideologically to take people who may have been psychotic at the time that they committed uh, a criminal offense or what's what's being called a criminal offense, uh, and put them together with somebody who who did something deliberately. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that as a society, it should not be so difficult to come up with an alternative to jail for people with major mental illness, something that's more consistent with treatment. And, you know, jails are 
there's, there, there are principles of sentencing, principles of criminal justice that have to do with deterrence, with, you know, rehabilitation. All these principles are, are time-honored principles that have to do that, that jails are meant for. They're not meant for treatment. And so we have to have something better than that. I don't think mixing people with serious mental illnesses, people who are uh, what uh, deliberately committed a criminal offence, uh, is the right way to go. Right. Joanne, what's your response to your personal response, your personal opinion regarding the point of view that jails are unsuitable places for persons with serious mental illnesses, regardless of the behaviour that brought them into the criminal justice system? Joanne, what do you think? Well, I think that, um, first of all, um, I think I would start with the premise, not all mentally ill persons are violent. Um, some people with a mental illness can be violent at certain times, and then there is uh, a degree of violence that has to be taken into consideration. Some violence is very low level, and some is very extreme, um, you know, obviously the worst being murder. Um, so I don't think we can say um, that jail is unsuitable regardless of the behavior. Um, I think it depends on how serious or not the case is. I do think uh, there is a tension between the needs of the mentally ill accused, and I think that most people would agree that the needs of the mentally ill accused are not well met in custodial facilities. But there is a tension between that and uh, protection of the public when a mentally ill person commits one of the most serious violent offenses uh, that we know. So that's the tension that exists. I think that ultimately we do have a system um, that takes into account the fact that some people uh, do suffer from mental illness when they commit uh, offenses, uh, and um, that is by way of the ultimate determination that a person is not criminally responsible for an offense that they committed. And if ultimately um, that verdict is found by a judge or a jury, um, then uh, that person will uh, be subject to the review board uh, in the province where they live if they're in Canada, and um, they would be kept in a forensic hospital, um, which is... Uh, uh, a place where their medical needs can be met and also protection of the public can be met at the same time. And eventually their um, liberty uh, would be slowly increased and they would gain access to the community as they become more stable and ultimately uh, eventually be absolutely discharged in the community when they are no longer a significant threat to the public. Thank you. Catherine, what changes would you like to see in the ways in which persons with serious mental illnesses are dealt with in the criminal justice system and jails? Catherine? Well, I have two uh, ideas which involve providing more services. And one of them, the first, is providing more residences that are supervised. And I'm calling it bail hostels. And this is an idea which would mean that uh, there, would, there would be essentially a residence, which would be a bail hostel, which would 
be staffed with mental health professionals who could enforce bail conditions such as curfews, medication, uh, and help with long-term financial stability. And I believe that something like that would make a huge difference to the system to have that. The second idea that I have is a surety partnering program, uh, which would mean that family members who otherwise would not come forward uh, because they, they don't feel competent to supervise, would come forward and partner with a, a professional mental health agency to supervise their family member. And in that way, they wouldn't have to take the full responsibility for uh, supervising their family member. And with that agency, that agency could take some of the responsibility of breaching the uh, the person who's charged, if necessary. And I think that if these ideas were implemented and, and I believe, funded by, by the provincial government and the funds taken from, uh, from jails, emergency room funds, and diverted from funds that are currently being spent on these very costly other um, uh, resources that in the long term it would benefit everyone and that bail is an opportunity, a time to offer services to people with serious mental illnesses and it's a time to intervene at a very early time and offer services when people with serious mental illnesses are very motivated to accept those services. So those are two ideas that I would like to see that I think could make a real difference. All right. Joanne, it's the same question for you. What changes would you personally like to see in the ways in which persons with serious mental illnesses are dealt with in the criminal justice system and jailed? Joanne? Um, well, I just want to say to begin with, I think there have been quite a number of changes in this area over the years um, which have sprung from sensitivity within the criminal justice system uh, to the needs of individuals who suffer from mental illness and uh, would agree that most mentally ill individuals who commit crimes do not belong in jails. Uh, and so more than ever, we do have um, mentally ill persons who are granted bail uh, pending their trials um, where we as Crown Attorneys consent um, to the release of mentally ill individuals with appropriate plans in place. Um, the Attorney General has uh, provided for mental health workers who assist um, all of us in the justice system with the development of their bail plans so that more people can be released safely in the community. Uh, and as Catherine has pointed out, we have mental health diversion. We divert many, many people charged uh, with criminal offenses who suffer from major mental illnesses out of the criminal justice system, uh, including some who commit uh, some lower level um, types of violent offenses. So I think we're already doing um, quite a lot in this area, and I can indicate that um, the Attorney General is also involved in the Mental Health and Justice Collaborative. Um, this is a, a new project which draws stakeholders uh, from various sectors in the community, from health and justice and other sectors, and it's a forum for putting forward ideas uh, for improvements in the system and improvements in cross-sector collaboration um, so that we can 
provide uh, better and improved services for these individuals who come into conflict with the law. Right. Both of you, thank you very much. Um, what I'd like to say back to you is, first of all, thank you for taking part in this important episode, but also thank you for talking so openly about your experience, your insights and your advice and your personal opinions. So both of you, all success in your work and clearly progress is being made. But my comment is that mental illness um, respects nothing. It's kind of like nature's lottery. And Therefore, mental illness is going to be with us in society for as far ahead as we can predict. So more and more strength to you both in the work you're doing. I want to say thank you to our um, listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be what personalized cancer medicine means. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do. Appreciate you being right.